Thanks for tuning in to the Crew at UGA podcast. We are so glad to have you with us. Crew exists to call students to know God, grow in their faith, and go to the world. If you would like to get more connected with Crew at UGA, or if we can help you in any way at all, go to the show notes and click on the link, or follow us on Instagram at Crew at UGA. All right, let's get started. Lord, I pray you show us your goodness. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Oh, amen. Uh, Well, hey guys, welcome to Crew. If we haven't met, I'm Daniel. Uh, And tonight we are wrapping up our talk series, God is Good. Uh, For the last couple weeks, we've been going through this series talking about how God is good. How do we cling, how do we see and cling to the goodness of God, even in the hard things of life? And tonight we're wrapping up the series uh, by talking about how God is good in the process. God is good in the process. And before we go any further, I want to just clarify, some of y'all are keying in probably to where we're going with this, Uh, but as we say that, that can kind of be a little, sometimes that's a little bit of jargon, that's a little bit of like inner circle lingo, so I want to explain what we mean when we say process. Uh, See, there's a quintessential, that means inseparable, a quintessential tension in the Christian life, Uh, and it comes out of one of the core confessions of Christianity, one of the core beliefs that all Christians share. And that's that God is the source of all power. Uh, Christians believe that God is beyond time and space and matter, that he is the uncreated creator of all existence. And that means, if you want to boil down to what that really means practically, uh, you can boil it down with this old uh, phrase that's used over and over again in old black church hymnals, God is able One of the core confessions of the Christian faith is that God is able to do whatever he wants. Uh, There's another fancy theological term we use for that called sovereignty. God is sovereign. He does what he chooses to do, and nothing and no one can stop him. We serve a God who is able. And yet, this creates, again, a quintessential tension when you observe or when you, even more, when you try and live the Christian life. See, we believe in a God who is able to change anything, solve everything, fix everything, and yet that same God seems really committed. It doesn't take much time if you observe Christians living their lives. It takes very little time if you live as a Christian to realize God does not seem interested in quickly, instantaneously fixing our problems. He seems very committed the testimony of scripture, the the narrative of the Bible. And again, if you've walked with or have tried to walk as a Christian for any amount of time, you quickly realize God seems very committed to taking us through a process through our problems. He seems very committed to not quick fixing our problems. And that creates a tension, a really intense struggle in the Christian life. Uh, on a theological, philosophical level, uh, we call that the problem of evil. Uh, historians, and, or sorry, theologians over the course of Christian history have called this the problem of evil. Uh, but you've probably heard this uh, phrase differently on, on campus here. Uh, there was a, there's actually a Christian writer and theologian named C.S. Lewis who was one of the people responsible for this. Uh, question actually shifting. Uh, he changed the way we, we phrase that question. It used to be talking about the problem of evil. Uh, how can a good God, how can an all-powerful God allow so much evil in the world? Uh, C.S. Lewis recoined that phrase and he called it the problem of pain. Uh, 
So if you walk around this campus, if you talk to people, one of the most common theological, intellectual, philosophical uh, problems, tensions, you'll hear people ask about Christianity as they observe Christians and the Christian life. They will say, how could a good God allow so much pain and suffering? How is God good in the process? And I want to begin tonight just by addressing that elephant in the room. Um, That's not where we're going to land, but I do want to address it. That's a really great question. Actually, the Bible says that's a really great question. We have that term, the problem of evil. We've coined and recoined that phrase, the problem of evil, the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, because for the last 2,000 years of Christian history, an enormous portion of Christian theologians have been dedicated to answering that question over and over and over again. Uh, Christians have never been afraid of that question question. You might have met a Christian who was afraid of that question. You might have been in a church setting that was afraid to answer or genuinely sit in that question. But I want to begin tonight by saying the Bible is not afraid of that question. There's entire books of the Bible, we're going to open one of them up tonight, that are dedicated to answering that question. Entire books of the Bible, the foremost of which is this book called Job. Uh, The Bible spends over 40 chapters of scripture dedicated to answering that one question. It does it through narrative, poetry, philosophy. Uh, The Bible's not afraid of that, and Jesus wasn't either. He addresses the problem of evil in multiple sermons and parables. Jesus is not afraid of this question. The Bible is not afraid of this question, and we as crew staff want you to hear this from the front. We are not afraid of that question. If that's where you're at, as you're sitting here in these seats, you find yourself wrestling through the problem of evil intellectually, philosophically, theologically, I just want you to hear this. We as crew staff want you to hear this. We want to walk with you through that. Desperately. In fact, if you look at those cards that they were talking about during announcements that's either under your seat or under the seat of someone next to you, you will literally see a box that says, I'm not sure about this whole God thing or I have questions. Tonight, I just want to invite you, I want to ask you, honestly, I want to beg you. I won't even bother being dignified about it. I want to beg you, if that's where you're at, please give us your name, your email, or your phone number and check that box because we want to walk with you through it. It's a great question, and Jesus and the Bible and a lot of Christian philosophers and theologians, great thinkers and pastors over the last 2,000 years have been convinced that if you actually ask that question and really walk through it, it will lead you straight to Jesus. So I wanna begin by inviting you, if, if for you this is an intellectual, philosophical question that you're seriously chewing on, please, we wanna walk with you through it. But that's not where we're gonna land tonight. Um, see, that book, Job, that again, devotes over 40 chapters of scripture to walking through the problem of evil, it's really interesting. In the middle of the book, Job, actually like the main character of the narrative portion of uh, that book actually highlights what's the real tension when a God who's able to fix your problems works you through a process instead. See, the real tension, the real problem of pain is not one of the mind. It's a matter of the heart and the soul. I want you guys to hear this from Job's own words. Uh, This is in Job chapter nine. Check this out. Uh, This is Job chapter nine. It's not the whole passage because we don't have time for it, but here's here's a gist. Indeed, I know, pay attention to how Job starts this. Then Job said, indeed, I know it's all true. But how could a mere mortal prove their innocence before God? Though they wished to dispute with him, they could not answer him. 
even one time out of a thousand. His wisdom's too profound, his power is too vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? And then he ends with this. He keeps going on, but he ends with this. Then I would speak to him without fear, but as it now stands, I just can't. Job is speaking uh, to a bunch of philosophers. He's speaking to the intellectual minds of his day. And as they're having this philosophical, theological, intellectual argument through the problem of pain, he comes to this, it doesn't, again, there's 40 some chapters of this, guys. Within nine, he comes to this point. Indeed, I know it's all true. Within nine chapters, less than a fourth of the way through the book, he says, okay, I get it. I've got all the intellectual answers, but that's not really my problem. And he goes on to explain in a really poetic language that, the, that old Mesopotamia, when this was written, used to use, the real problem. He says, the problem isn't that I need answers. See, the problem, the tension, when God's got me through this process, there's no knowledge, there's no theology, there's no philosophy that's going to save me from the experience of that pain. You cannot outthink the experience of a process when a God who could fix things chooses to walk you through it instead. The only thing that will get you through the process when God, almost without exception, walks you through a process instead of quickly fixing your problems is seeing and clinging to his goodness. And that's where we're landing tonight. How do we see, how do we cling to the goodness of God when he's got you in a process, a process you know he could fix? Again, this is an experiential tension, so I want to just highlight this experientially. I'll open my Bible back up, but for a minute, I just want to be real with y'all. See, again, it's one thing to have the answers, it's another to live them. Uh, Because when God's got you on a process, more often than not, it's really hard. Um, I remember when I was uh, in eighth grade, I was wrapping up eighth grade. It was right before summer. And my father came into my room, uh, sat me down and said, hey, I've got something I, wanna, I, I, I need to talk to you about. Last night I had an ex- experience with God. God kind of, he experienced what he called a vision from God. But he had this conversation with God where God said, hey, I want you to move. I want you to leave everything and start a church here in Athens, Georgia. And so he said, our plan right now, your mom and I were praying. We felt really confirmed by this. We have three family friends who are going to support us. So we're going to leave everything, leave a really amazing community, leave a really comfortable life, and start this church in our basement. We're going to move everything. But we have to do this as a family. The reality is, if we do this, you're going to be the first member of this church we're starting. And we can't do it without at least asking you, are you willing to go through this? And I looked him and metaphorically looked God in the eyes and said, yes, I trust you. Dad, I trust you, and also God, I trust you. So we moved, and within less than six months, we had over 100 people at this church we started in our basement. My parents' ministry was thriving and blossoming. They'd never seen ministry like this. Uh, my brother, uh, my little brother, uh, we, got to, we got to his new school, and within three weeks, uh, became football captain, uh, within four, became basketball captain. He became one of the most popular kids in his school almost overnight. But me, two weeks before school started, I was at a football camp, and I got caught with a Bible in my hand. 
And the guys on the football team, before I even got on campus, started to call me the Bible boy. Before I even walked on campus, I had the nickname Preacher Kid. And literally was told at that football camp, oh, you'd be cool if you weren't such a Christian. And to make a very long season of my life very short and succinct, I spent four years worth of weekends alone explicitly because I trusted this God who I knew could at any point answer my one prayer that I prayed every weekend for four long years. Don't need to be popular. I just need one real friend. And after four years, I still had no answer. So how do you see the goodness of God? How do you cling to it? when he's got you in a process and there doesn't seem to be any change. There's no intellectual, no theological answer that's gonna make it easy. Or maybe you're like my wife. Um, my wife, Missy's an angel. She's in the back. It's her birthday tonight. I love her. I love you. Thanks for being here. Um, okay. Uh, uh, but Missy, uh, if you know her, she's incredible. Um, but uh, if you really know her, um, you know that um, in her, uh, especially in her high school years, started to struggle with um, some forms of anxiety. And she came to college, she got plugged into Christian community, she was a Christian, she loved the Lord, but she got plugged into Christian community, and her freshman year, her faith just soared, and all of a sudden, anxiety just seemed to fade away. And she put more and more faith in Christ, it was like anxiety just flew away, until sophomore year. Her sophomore year of college, towards the beginning of, of that season of her life, um, uh, her dad, who's a very evil and cruel man, uh, did some really terrible things to their family. And almost overnight, all that anxiety that she thought she'd overcome, that she thought God had brought her through, came crashing back double as hard. And for seven years, I watched the love of my life go through this war with anxiety. Every couple of months, Something would happen, she'd be praying, or, or someone would show up, or God would just give her exactly what she needed, and for a day, a month, a week, the anxiety would fade. And then a day, a week, a month later, it would come crashing back twice as heavy as before. For seven years at war with anxiety, for seven years, every victory, every step forward, two steps back. And seven years in, no philosophy, no Bible answer could get her through the experience of being in a war that constantly feels like no matter how many victories you get, you're always being hit twice as hard after. What do we do when we're in a war and nothing seems to stick? Nothing makes that easy. Or maybe the process God's got you on is like what happened to me on the weekend of my 23rd birthday. Uh, a quick part of my testimony, just again to be real with y'all, uh, to be honest, uh, a quick part of my testimony uh, when, uh, or my story of faith. Uh, when I was in uh, between, the summer between fifth and sixth grade, um, I ended up in this situation where uh, I was uh, in two sit, like, kind of sit-downs of, of truth or dare, and they both went way too far and to make a very long story short, um, my two sen first sensual, like quasi-sexual encounters were homosexual ones. 
Very shortly after that happened, I went to my parents, and just like we were talking about last week at Crew, like our guest speaker Thorne shared about, my parents were incredible. They handled me with absolute compassion, and they loved me, and they shared with me truth, but they shared it with deep love. They asked some really hard questions in the kindest way, and they really loved me well. And at the end of that time, sitting down with my parents, they prayed over me, and as we were praying, I felt the presence of God more deeply than I'd ever felt and I experienced him really healing me, really covering me. And so for 10 years, from the age of about 12 to 22, that was my story. This really dark thing had happened to me, and God had healed me and protected me and overcome it, and that was it, until the weekend of my 23rd birthday. Uh, that weekend, I got a call from a friend, or someone who I thought was a friend, um, from an internship I'd had in Atlanta, and he said, hey, uh, he was working for Disney, and he said, hey, now I live at a Disney resort, and it's awesome and epic, and if you want for your birthday, I know you're coming down for, for the weekend uh, for a wedding, if you wanna come down and just stay with me at this awesome Disney resort for free, like, come on, and I thought, oh my gosh, Disney resort, my birthday, this sounds awesome, until I got there. And when I got there, um, that person I thought was a friend put me in a really compromising situation. And uh, that weekend I was put in a really uh, painful situation of sexual harassment. And the next day, as I drove on my, up on my 23rd birthday, as I drove back to Georgia and then back up to New Jersey where I was in grad school, 20 hours of driving, nothing no head knowledge that I didn't put myself in that situation, that I wasn't guilty of doing anything wrong, no soul knowledge even of knowing God had covered me and that he really was protecting me, that he was for me, could change the feeling, the experience, that voice screaming at me saying over and over again, nothing has changed. What do you do when God's got you on a process and you end up in a situation where because of your choices or the choices of somewhere else, you look in the mirror and the voice you hear says, nothing has changed. There is no theology, no philosophy, no intellect that will get you through that. The only thing that will walk you through a true process when God puts you through a process and he is committed to putting you through a process. And the only thing that will get you through is seeing and clinging to the goodness of God. So what does that look like? Well, go no further than Jeremiah chapter 18. We're gonna see the goodness of God here in Jeremiah chapter 18. We're starting in verse one. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, get up. Go down to this potter's house, and there I want to show you my words. So I, this is Jeremiah speaking, so I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his potter's wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay got spoiled. Another way of saying that, the clay was ruined in the potter's hand, but he reworked it into another vessel, and it seemed very good to the potter. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, my people, can't I do with you just like this potter's done? Declares the Lord, behold, you're like clay in my potter's hands. That's how you're in my hand, O my people. 
Israel. Let me give you guys some context. Uh, Jeremiah was this prophet in the ancient world. That's a fancy way of saying God, when he wanted to speak to people who were going through something as a community, uh, he'd speak to Jeremiah, and then Jeremiah would share what God was telling to them. Uh, Israel, God's people, are in the middle of a very long and hard process. God is working them in the midst of a very terrible series of processes under some very messy rulers. And then uh, what they're about to go through is a really terrible exile from their home. And in the middle of this process, God tells Jeremiah, I want to go down and show you. I want you to see how I view you guys in the midst of all your problems, in the midst of all your struggles, in the midst of this process. I want you to understand how I see you. And so he takes Jeremiah down to this potter's house, and, and there's this potter, and he's working. If you guys have ever seen a potter, they'll lean over or they'll sit down at a wheel, and they'll hit the wheel, and he'll spin this clay around, and he's shaping and molding this wet clay. And as Jeremiah's watching, uh, something happens to the clay. It spoils or it ruins. And there's two ways clay, clay ruins. The first is as you're spinning it, it just splits. It can't handle the wheel, and it just rips apart. And it falls all over the place. Or, and or, the other way is as you're shaping it, there's a side of it or a part of it that just won't budge, that just won't shift. And it causes the whole thing to get warped and to start to slide in this really gross, weird way. And as Jeremiah is watching this, uh, this is what is going through his mind. He sees the clay get warped. He sees the clay get ruined and fall off. And what he expects, what anyone would expect what any normal potter would do is just give up. If you have ruined clay, traditionally, as a potter, you, it's literally molded dirt. You just stamp it out, go find some better dirt, make it into clay, and start over with some new stuff. But this potter is different. Where other people would throw the clay away, he picks it back up. And he reworks it until there's no crack in it. He pulls it back on and he reshapes it, starts all the way back over on the wheel, and then he gets right back to work forming it. And God says, this is how I see you. See, one of the biggest tensions when God's got us through a process is that we don't look at things the way God does. We don't see ourselves or our problems the way God does. See, we see problems, we see ourselves, we see our world, we see other people as things to fix. But God doesn't see your problems as something to fix. He sees you and the people around you and the world around you as a masterpiece in the making. And where you or me or anyone else would give up. He wants to take the warps in your life and mold them into masterpieces. Where you and I would seek a quick fix to the problem that is quickly forgotten. He wants to turn you into a living, breathing masterpiece that answers the question of your problem. He wants to answer your questions and answer your problems and answer the world through you. And he is committed. Unlike us, he's committed 
to walking with you through that process. When we give up on ourselves, he's committed to our process. And where we would be okay and satisfied with a quick solution that is quickly forgotten, he's committed to making a masterpiece of you that all eternity will remember. That's how we see the goodness of God in the midst of our process. We want to fix the problem. He wants to form it. But how do you cling to him? That answers the C question, but not the cling. How do we do this practically? Well, go no further than 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to take you all into this. There's a lot of passages we could dive into tonight. This will not answer all of your questions. But I think this will give you enough because it was enough for God's people in this circumstance. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're starting in verse 1. Then you, my child or my son, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, I want you to entrust to faithful men and women who will be able to teach it to others also. Share in suffering. Another way of saying that, go through the process. As a good soldier of Christ Jesus, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Another way, some of your translations might say, his commanding officer. His aim is to please his commanding officer. An athlete's not crowned unless they compete according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who produces the best crops. Meditate or just think over what I'm saying for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let me give you guys some context. Uh, this is Paul, one of the uh, founders of uh, the Christian church, uh, speaking, and he's speaking to someone who is like a son to him, Timothy. Uh, and let me explain the process that God's got both these guys going through. Paul is in jail. He's preparing to die. He's working through that. Timothy, a guy who's like his son, is trying to, he's a young man, very young, trying to lead and pastor an underground church, a church that is being persecuted for their faith. They are being killed um, in public. And these are the processes that God has them going through. And in the midst of this, Paul is writing to Timothy, and this is what he tells him to do. He says, remember these two metaphors. And it's really easy to miss if, if you don't know what to look for. But he tells him, he really, he brings up three metaphors. If you want to get really technical, he throws a little one in between there. But there's two big metaphors he brings up. And, and if you know kind of the whole testimony of Scripture, what he's doing here, you'll, you'll see what he's doing here. He brings up two of what Christians call the three great metaphors of the Bible. Scripture has three great metaphors, and we call them the great metaphors because from Genesis to Revelation, they're mentioned over and over and over again. They're the three, like, strongest ways God wants you to understand this is what a relationship with me is really like. The first one that doesn't get mentioned here is marriage, just a side note. First one, if you wanna know what a relationship with God is supposed to be like, it's like a marriage. It's a permanent covenant, deep, intimate romance. The second two are war. A relationship with God is like a war, and the third is it's like agriculture. It's like growing plants. It's like growing living things. And Paul, in the middle of this process, in the middle of Timothy's process, says, remember these two metaphors. He throws another one in there for good measure. We won't have time to dive into that tonight. 
But he says, remember these two great metaphors and everything will start to make sense. Not that you'll get all the intellectual answers, but everything will start to click. If you can cling to these two metaphors, it'll get the process going. It's how we cling to the goodness of God when he's got us in process. The first of these metaphors, again, is war. And he brings up something specifically. He says a relationship with God is like a war. It's like a battle. And remember, you are like a soldier and God's like your commanding officer. And, and Timothy, as soon as he heard this, would have clued into something. Uh, in the ancient world, if you were a part of a battalion, if you were a soldier and you had a commanding officer, especially a high commander, a legionnaire, uh, you were literally, when you, when you became a soldier, required to take an oath, pledging your unquestioning loyalty to that commander. See, when you're in the middle of a battle and you're a soldier, they just understood this, you're a pawn on the chessboard. You're not in charge. Because as you're in the middle of the battle, you can't see the whole picture. You can't see the whole war. That's the commanding officer's responsibility. He would stand up on a hill or he'd stand at the back and it wasn't because he was a coward, it was because he needed to see the whole view. And at times, again, soldiers were required to give unquestioning loyalty, not because the commander was mean, not because the commander didn't care. It was actually quite the opposite. It was because the commander was the only one who could see the big picture, and he was the only one who could actually tell who was winning the battle. If you were a soldier, you could spend the entire battle thinking you're losing when actually you're destroying the enemy. But you'd never know because you didn't have the clear vision. And this is what Paul reminds Timothy in the middle of his process. He says, remember, as you're going through the pain, as you're going through the war, you can't see what he's up to. But know he's winning. You can't see what he's up to, but you have to know he's winning. He doesn't say don't question him. He says give him your unquestioning loyalty. He doesn't say don't ask questions. He doesn't say don't have problems. But he says when everything comes to shove, when push comes to shove, follow. Because while you think you're losing, he's winning something great through you. Like I said, seven months into that war with anxiety, um, I remember sitting down with my wife and she said something uh, that kind of broke my heart. She said, I... There's a part of me that just thinks, if I just had as much faith as I did when I was a freshman, then maybe I'd be free of this anxiety. And that broke me, guys. In tears, I looked her in the eyes, and I told her what I'd wanted to say for years. I said, beloved, you did not love Jesus as much as you, as you do now, seven years ago. Seven years ago, you loved him because he brought you through a little bit. Now you love him because he's brought you through a lot. And over the last seven years, I'd watched person after person after person, young woman after young woman after young woman, change, lives transform because someone knew, they'd watched someone walk through the same struggle that they'd been through and choose him over and over and over again because he was worth it. And every two steps back, she thought she was experiencing was a huge win in the Lord. It wasn't two months later, we were in the middle of a prayer meeting and the Holy Spirit just really touched her and released her from a lot of anxiety. And while it's still a reality that she sometimes walks, walks through, anxiety has never paralyzed her again. 
you think you're losing. And you might be, but he's winning. You might be losing, but he is winning your war. Let him win your war. And lastly, Paul ends with this. He says, remember the good farmer. We don't live in an agricultural society anymore, so we miss what he's saying here. Uh, The world used to run off an agricultural system and off an agricultural calendar. That meant everything ran under four seasons. See, in agriculture, when you're planting things, everything runs according to four seasons, especially in the ancient Middle East. Uh, The shortest, quickest, and most intense season for a farmer, especially a hardworking farmer who was committed to a really good crop, was sowing season. You broke a lot of ground, you did a lot of work, and it was really hard, but you could see what you were doing. You cast all your seed, and then that season was done. But right after sowing season came the winter or the dry season. And during that time, most farmers gave up. Most farmers in the ancient world would just give up during that season, or they'd get lazy. Because when it's dry and dark and cold, you never see any growth in plants. But there's a crazy secret that good farmers know. It's during the cold, dry, and dark seasons that plants have their most important growth because that's when their roots go deep. A lazy farmer, a careless farmer who just wants a quick something will sow, do the intense stuff at the front, and then give up. But a hardworking farmer, like God, he works, he loves, he strives in the winter season when there's no growth apparent, but everything's going real deep. A lazy farmer stops, uh, even if you're not like the laziest of farmers, another kind of lazy farmer would stop in spring. Uh, during springtime, or when everything starts to bud, that's, they call that the season of the first fruits, and that's when things start to pop up, right? And for an average farmer, they collect everything at that time, because you got something. It's okay. It's good. It's not great, but it's okay. But a truly great farmer, a farmer who is committed to the best, to the first, the finest crop, keeps working, won't harvest even in the spring because he's committed to a real awesome harvest that actually produces something worth gathering. You and I, if we were running our lives, we'd be content to just sow something. We'd give up during the winter. We'd maybe harvest something during the spring. We would never stick around for harvest season. But that's not how God works. He's a hardworking farmer. And while you and I are not committed to it sometimes, he is always committed to the process of making something amazing out of you. And if you find yourself in the middle of a season where you're praying and crying out and nothing seems to change. If you're in the winter, just remember this. It's the most important season of growth because while you don't see anything, that's when he's really doing something. Cling to it. And that's how we see and cling to the goodness of God 
even in the process. We see his goodness because while we would just want to fix the problems quickly, he picks us back up even when we find ourselves right back where we started. And he keeps working because he's committed to forming a masterpiece out of us. He doesn't want to fix your problems. He wants to form you into an answer to them. And we cling to him because even when we can't see it, he's working a victory. And even when we don't see it, the growth is going really deep. I want to leave you guys with two quick words, one from scripture and and one that's kind of a, a paraphrase. First and foremost, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, it ends with this. uh, Do not grow weary when God is working in you, for the labor of God is never in vain. The process of God is never wasted. If he's got you in a process, and I promise if he doesn't now, he will. When he's got you through a process, it is never wasted. And the last word is this. If you follow Jesus, this is a warning I was given by a really dear spiritual father of mine, when I became a Christian. Remember this, it will cost you more than you think you have. And if you knew what he would ask of you, you would quit now. But what you will gain will be beyond your wildest imaginations and it will be worth it. It will cost you more than you have You would quit now if you really knew what he'd asked of you. But let him walk you through the process. Because what he's forming in and through you is beyond your wildest imaginations. And it is worth it. Let me pray for y'all. Jesus, I pray for each and every one of us who's been, who is in, and who will go through the process with you, God. I pray that you would carry us through. Help us, God. Lord, I pray uh, that you'd show us your goodness. I pray for those who are theologically, intellectually asking those questions. How can a good God allow suffering? I pray you'd answer us. Lord, I pray you'd give them the courage to really ask the questions and really walk through it. Give us the answers. I pray for those who are seeking you. God, I pray that they would see your goodness. And I pray for those of us who are crying out that we would cling to you and find you're not far from any of us. And that you are working something wonderful, even now in the process. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.